0: It's a joy to be with you. We just landed in Cane Bay on Monday, so we still have a big pile of boxes, but thankfully we found the ones that my dress shoes were in, so we are okay. Please turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. In your pew Bible, it's page 976, 976, and as you flip there, we'll be looking at a prayer that Paul prayed. So this is his prayer for the church at Ephesus. Please notice what he prays for. Now please stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your good and perfect Word. Lord, I do consecrate my lips. I consecrate their ears and their hearts for Your good, for our good, for Your glory, Lord. For we are Your people. This is Your day, and we are delighted to be in Your presence, worshiping You, looking at Your Word. Father, please help me say nothing more and nothing less than what is here. I pray In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please be seated. During World War II, there were two British soldiers who were captured. They were put in a concentration camp. And in this particular concentration camp, someone had snuck in a radio. And so, hidden from the guards, they were listening to reports from the war, how things were going, how the Allied advance was progressing. Finally, one day, they got news over that radio that the Germans had surrendered. The war was over. Their their freedom was to come very soon. Well, so immediately, they erupt in joy. They're laughing at the guards. They're waving at the dogs. Well, three days later, it takes that long for the German soldiers to find out. And they flee during the night, leaving the gates open. The next morning, all the prisoners walk to their freedom. I tell you that because I want you to focus on one particular piece of that. When did their joy begin? When did their joy begin? Was it when they walked through those gates to freedom? Or when they heard that report over the radio? Of course, it was when they heard the report. You see, information can change our perspective. When we hear good news, before any of our circumstances change, it can have a drastic impact on our hearts. This morning we'll be looking at three great truths in this prayer by Paul, and it can have a great impact on your heart, just like that radio did for those in the concentration camp. But if you're like me, sometimes you'll open your Bible, kind of blurry eyed on a Tuesday morning, and you'll read passages like this, and it will have absolutely no effect. It'll just be words on a page. It'll go in one ear and out the other. And so I encourage us, let us pray this morning that even as we read this, that God would enable us to understand these great truths. Paul was praying, if you look at verse 17, that God would give the believers in Ephesus the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. But Paul doesn't leave it at that. He restates himself with this beautiful word picture. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Kids, what is it that you see with? Your eyes, right? What is it that we say that you feel with? Or that we have emotions with? Isn't it our hearts? And so here Paul has put these two things together. And he said, the eyes of your heart enlightened. That we would see and feel the reality of what he's about to pray for them. You know, as the game show host for Wheel of Fortune used to say, Vanna, tell them what they've won. This morning, as I tell you what you've won in your salvation, I'm not expecting the same response as the average Wheel of Fortune contestant. But my hope is, is that in your hearts there will be a tiny little jump for joy. For it is, these things are worthy of that. This morning we'll be answering this question. What is the result if the eyes of our hearts are enlightened? What will be the result if the eyes of our hearts are enlightened? We will understand three things. First, the hope of our calling. The hope of our calling. Secondly, the riches of our glorious inheritance. And finally, immeasurable great power. Let us begin with the first. The hope of our calling. Look at verse 18 again. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. To understand this, we need to step back to our prior state, prior to being a Christian. We were once excluded from the people of God. In the very next chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul will say this. This is verse 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, having no hope and without God in the world, completely hopeless with no future or promise, just the fearful expectation of judgment. That was true of all of us prior to Christ. How does the world respond to this reality? Denial? Distraction? I don't know if you've ever been to a non-Christian funeral, a funeral where the people are not Christians. It is an utterly sad affair. Some will reminisce, it, reminisce about the great life the person had, while others will cover the whole thing with a thick layer of jovial makeup. But deep down, there's utter despair. You know, and contrast that with a Christian funeral. Yes, there are still many tears and there's much sadness, but there is a confident assurance that we will see that loved one again in heaven, that we know where they are. They are with God. Back to Ephesians chapter 2, following on that passage, it says, this is 12 and 13, it says, Having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were once brothers and sisters far off, but we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? Nothing but the blood. God has called us, meaning that He initiated. And as we know from Romans chapter 8, that those who God calls, He also glorifies. What He starts, He always finishes. And praise God for it. And This gives us great hope and confidence. But we must ask ourselves, why did Paul choose to pray this for the Ephesians? That they would, have, they would know the hope of their calling. Paul was prioritizing the eternal. Because how you view the future will largely determine how you feel in the present. Let me say that again. How you view the future will largely determine how you feel in the present. If I may pause for a moment to speak of a very serious matter. I don't know if any of you have ever struggled with depression. If any of you have ever had suicidal thoughts. If you felt like your life is hopeless, like you have no hope for the future. I pray, like Paul did, That the eyes of your heart would understand that you truly have a hope. If you are a Christian, that is greater than any of the seemingly seemingly hopeless circumstances you presently have. The living God has called you as to be His child. You now have a family. You have this family. And you have a future that is sure. So in addition to the hope of our calling, Paul will go on and pray for two more things for the church at Ephesus. Secondly, the riches of his glorious inheritance. In verse 18, look there again, he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? I don't know if you've ever read a will before. A will is actually some of the most boring reading, a bunch of legal language. Yet, but if your name is in it, Somehow, it magically, instantaneously is transformed to the most captivating literature you've ever read, if your name is in it. This morning, brothers and sisters, your name is in here. When it says that you have a glorious inheritance, it's talking about you. It's talking about you, and praise God. An inheritance, an earthly inheritance, can immediately change the rest of your life, long before you see a dime of it. If this week you find out that some distant relative of of yours has left you this enormous fortune, you are going to feel different about traffic this week. You're going to feel different about everything this week. And you have not received a penny of that. It is just the knowledge of the inheritance that is coming to you. Did this passage not just say that you have a glorious inheritance? It did. We read in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust in the stock market, sorry, that's not there, moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. And lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, we have a treasure that's much better than any earthly treasure. I want you to think for a moment about Paul's first readers, the church at Ephesus. We learn a little bit about them in Acts chapter 19. We find this, this is Acts chapter 19, 18 to 20. It says, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, the value of the books, and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see, these new believers in Ephesus sacrificed their earthly wealth because it was attached to their their dark arts, to what they had been doing. They just lost a value of 50,000 pieces of silver. This is easily worth several million dollars in today's money. These followers of Christ decided that it was worth more to follow Christ, to be faithful to that, than great riches. And so here, they're receiving this letter from Paul, and Paul is praying and telling them, reminding them, may you understand this glorious inheritance that you have. They understand inheritance, and they just lost it. They burned it. You see, being a Christian will not always pay big dividends in this life. But your inheritance after this life is unimaginable. Understanding this reality with the eyes of your heart really makes a difference with how you feel about your money. So in addition to the hope of your calling and the riches of his glorious inheritance, or our glorious inheritance, Paul will pray that we understand one more thing. Immeasurable great power, third and finally, verse 18 and 19. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. If you lived in the first century in Ephesus, these words would have been of great encouragement to you. Being a Christian in Ephesus likely meant becoming significantly economically, politically, and socially disadvantaged. In this city that was dominated by the Diana cult. It might be similar if you lived in a Muslim community in the Middle East today, but actually much closer to home, many major corporations now are pushing very heavily that their employees should promote the LGBTQ agenda. There is pressure on believers. If you're in a public university, you're likely feeling this even stronger. So how do we respond if we are ashamed to say we hold to the Bible, we hold to the Bible's view of morality? We hold to the Bible's view of gender? That's not real popular today, is it? It's not. And so when they tried to hold to a, a biblical view in the first century in Ephesus, I guarantee you there were many agendas that were being pushed that were not biblical then too. And so in that day they, they loved all their neighbors and they were kind to everyone whatever, whatever their, their morality So also we love those people, but we must hold and say, this is true. What the Bible says is true. And it will likely get you humiliated at some point in your life. Someone will laugh at you. Really? You believe that? Really? We have to say yes. And so into that context, into the context of first century Ephesus, into our context today, we find Paul saying this. I want you to understand the immeasurable great power. Christ is ruling. Christ is in absolute control over every corporation, every country, every dictator in the entire world. So what does this look like? What does it look like that we have this immeasurable great power? In 2 Corinthians 12, we find Paul, actually God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I contend with, listen to this list, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. But Paul doesn't stop in this passage by stating that God has exerted this great power on our behalf. He actually gives three supporting evidences. Because in this, naturally when we hear words like this, that we have immeasurably great power, we think of it as we do with our worldly eyes. We think, who are powerful people? Do powerful people, listen to that list, have weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions? No, the powerful people get to avoid those things. You see, it's defined differently. But look with me at verse 19 and 20. Look at these three supporting evidences of what this power looked like. Verse 19, it says, They raised Jesus from the dead. That's speaking of Christ's resurrection. If you hadn't grown up knowing the Easter story, the resurrection of Christ would absolutely shock you. I mean, think about it. Jesus' body was absolutely crushed on the cross. And then he died there. He was buried. But then three days later, he crushes death. And he appears to his disciples walking through walls. That's power. That's unbelievable power. Look at this secondly. Verse 20, he says, And seated him, God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is Christ's exaltation. After Christ rose from the grave, he rose to heaven with his Father, who highly exalted him to his rightful place as his, in his throne in heaven. This takes power beyond what we can understand to exalt Christ to heaven. Look at verse 21. So he gives a third evidence. He says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Christ's victory over all power throughout all the world, throughout all of history, throughout the visible realm, and throughout the spiritual realm. Our, our triune God has power over every nation. Think about Exodus 14. Kids, you remember the Pharaoh story in the Red Sea? Remember what happened to Pharaoh? He went into that Red Sea and God crushed him with the water. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Nebuchadnezzar. God made him eat grass like an ox. He was one of the greatest kings, and there he is eating grass like an ox. Acts chapter 12, Herod who does not honor God, falls dead, eaten by worms. Now you tell me that God is not sovereign over Trump. That God is not sovereign over Obama, North Korea, every other world leader. God is sovereign. But you see, we don't see it the way we'd like to see it. What we'd like to see, just think you're in the first century in Rome. What would you like to see happen to Rome? Would you like to see Rome crushed And you would like to be free. Is that what happened? Is that what happened when Christ's kingdom came with power? No. The Romans stayed in power. The Christians were being burned. How does this work? Now you see why Paul needed to pray, that they would understand the immeasurable great power that God had for them. You know, we often think of Christ in his humiliation. We think of him as a weak baby, a poor man, a man hanging on a tree. And yes, that's important. That was the first half of his ministry, but the end of it ends with his exaltation. This passage is focused on his exaltation. We too will likely be humbled in this life, but like Christ, we'll be exalted in the next. So though, can you see Christ's rule in our country right now? Can you see Christ's rule in the world right now? If we're honest, we'd have to say yes and no, wouldn't we? Just like they would in Rome. How do we see Christ's power? Where is Christ's power being exerted in the world right now? I'll tell you where. It's in the end of our passage. It's the church. You see, in the first century, Rome could not stamp out the church. It exploded. It continues to explode in China and around the world. It continues to advance slowly, bit by bit, but it has not been stopped. No nation has ever been able to stop the advance of God's church. Look at verse twenty-two and twenty-three. And he put on, and he put all things under Christ's feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him who fills all in all. God exalted Christ, and we are his body. Will Christ not care for his body? You care for your body. Will Christ not care for his body? Because of our union with Christ, we enjoy ultimate security and safety. Because Christ is in ultimate control of everything. We have nothing to fear. You know, our young children think that we are invincible and they jump into our our arms when they're scared. God is infinitely able to protect you. Just like any parent wishes to protect their children. Romans 8, we find that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, no weapon formed against us can prevail. Isaiah 54. This is not only true of us individually, it is also true corporately. What gave your pastor the courage 20 years ago to plant this church? What gives me or any pastor the courage to plant churches today? It certainly is not confidence in ourselves. It is confidence in passages like these, that Christ really is reigning and ruling. That the gates of hell cannot stop the advance of Christ's church and praise God for it. Does this look like explosive megachurches? Usually not. Remember Jesus who said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts small and grows slowly and steadily over time. So also we should expect the kingdom of God. So we understand this for ourselves and for our churches. How else are we to use this? We ought to pray this for others that they may understand their great hope, inheritance, and power in Christ if they're a believer. I mean, think for a moment. When you pray for your friends and family, what do you pray? We did a survey last night at dinner. We said, What if we put all the prayers that have ever been prayed and you categorize them? What do you think would be the the most common ones? Finding a good job? Finding a spouse? Finding your keys? getting into a good college, getting there safely, getting a good diagnosis, getting better. Does that not describe most of our prayers? And there's nothing wrong with those prayers. I pray those prayers. They're important. But why did Paul not pray those things? Paul knew the church at Ephesus. He'd served there for at least two years. He could have prayed specific things for specific people, but he didn't. Remember when I said at the beginning, He was priori- prioritizing the eternal. Because He knows that our greatest need is not material, but spiritual. Our greatest need, your greatest need, brothers and sisters, is not material, but is spiritual. So in addition to having our perspective transformed. May this impact the way we pray for others. I encourage you, this week, try praying, verses 17 to 19, for someone you love. I did it this morning. It's it's good. It's just, it's not natural. We just, we pray for the specific stuff they need. We don't pray for things like the understanding, the hope of their calling, their great inheritance, and the great power that God has toward them. As we wrap up, I need to pause for a moment. You know these great blessings that are in this passage, you don't actually get them by membership in this church. You don't actually get them by regularly attending this church. Look at verse 15. For this reason, Paul said, because I have heard of your what? Your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, what you believe and what you do. How you think and how you feel, he says. That they are trusting. They have faith in Christ. That they are no longer on the throne of their life. But now Christ is. They are not calling the shots. They do not love themselves. We all naturally love themselves. They now love each other. You see, that's, those are the people that get these gifts. These blessings come to Christians. They are people who, as Paul said, have faith in Christ. If you have not done that, if you are still reigning and ruling in your life, if you call the shots, please, today would be a great day to get off that throne. Today would be a wonderful day to let Christ be on that throne. Every knee will bow one day, willingly, or because Christ has now come in power. Please, may it be today. Maybe today, before He's come back, there will be no more time then. These blessings come to you even now this inheritance, this hope, this great power, you certainly need it, I do as well. If you are a believer, may these three things that Paul has prayed, may you understand them deeply in your hearts, so the next time you're depressed, you may be able to remind yourself of the hope of your calling, a hope that will never fade. That when you suffer earthly loss for the sake of Christ, you may remind yourself of the riches of your glorious inheritance that's better than any earthly inheritance. When you feel weak and powerless, you may remember the immeasurable greatness of His power that He has employed on your defense to uphold you. I pray that the Holy Spirit may bring these truths to mind, not right now, but on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday when you need them most. That it may change our perspectives just like that radio did in that concentration camp. That this report, not from the Allied advance, but from heaven, that God has given us in His perfect words, you can trust this word, it is perfect. That it may encourage our hearts as we meditate on them this week. And whatever challenges you face, may these truths radically transform your perspective and mine. Let us pray. O gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this report, not over a radio, but from you through the hands of your apostles and prophets. Father, I pray for their hearts. Lord, that my brothers and sisters may understand this deeper, that it may sink in, may sink into my dull mind when I need it most. Holy Father, it is our desire to believe that which is true, but is hard. That which is close seems big, and that which is far seems small. Lord, please, by your holy spirit give us understanding. May the hearts of our, our may the eyes of our hearts be enlightened to these truths. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.